This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Carney Lansford. Carney Lansford, third baseman, Oakland Athletics, card number 292. Okay, Carney Lansford, and we'll get to Carney in just a moment. But first, we have some follow-up on last week's episode about Jose De Leon. After last week's Jose De Leon episode, at the Silver Fox on Twitter, Sean Silver said, could the case be made that Jose De Leon was the unluckiest pitcher in the history of MLB? And while we didn't really break this down on the podcast, we did talk about him being much better than his record would indicate. As soon as I Googled Jose De Leon, unlucky, I found a Bill James Online article, The Not-So-Lucky Guys. Actually, the title is Lucky Bastards, and then The Not-So-Lucky Guys is the subtitle for the, the unluckiest pitchers of all time, which says that actually Burt Blylevin was the unluckiest pitcher of all time. His deserved one-loss record was 335 and 233, while his actual win-loss record was 287 and 250. De Leon, on the other hand, had a win-loss record 33 games under 500, but deserved to be 116 and 101. He's fourth on this list, behind a guy named Buster Brown, which is a fantastic name. But Bill James says, Jose De Leon finished 33 games under 500, although his career performance is about equal to Denny McLean, Vic Rashi, or Charles Nagy, guys who I think have a better reputation than Jose De Leon, who led the league in losses twice, and a lot of people remember as a losing pitcher on some pretty bad teams. Once again, the Dutch master of the hot foot makes an appearance on the show. Good to hear Bert Blylevin's name again. So De Leon, very unlucky, but not the most unlucky if you'd like to send comments to us, you can find us on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash 1988topspodcast. Now let's go to this week's card and Carney Lansford. And why are we talking about Carney today? I don't remember. I started a document <laughs> that just said Carney Lansford. It had a video of a brawl. And I don't remember oh. when I started this. And then this week I was <laughs> like, oh, Carney Lansford has a saber bio by Joe Wancho. Let's do that. And then I was looking at his Wikipedia article and he has perhaps my favorite unsourced wikipedia snippet that i've ever found carney lansford had a very underrated career he's a guy that i think a lot of us remember because he has a cool name and he was on some very good oakland athletics teams but i don't know that folks remember him as good as he was he was one of the better third basemen of the 1980s and has a little bit of tragedy in his story a lot of injuries, but a, a very good career and seems like a good guy as well. I did remember him, but always remembered his last name as Lankford and still uh, it's still stuck in my brain to sometimes to this very day. Literally to this very day, because earlier I asked you about famous carnies and you said Lankford. Sorry to That's call right. you out publicly. That's fine. It's only one letter off and we go to the front of 292, Carney Lansford. This is a good-looking card. This is the first card, I think, that we've seen where the player is in or near the batting cage, which gives a nice chain-link fence and netting kind of look to the background, which is very artistic. Carney Lansford looks like he's 14 years old in this, except that he has a decent mustache, a real decent red 
mustache. Much better mustache than the average 14-year-old could pull off. Carney being in the batting cage or near the batting cage seems about right. This is a professional hitter here. He looks good in that green and yellow. I I do like that Oakland A's look. Yellow undershirt, got some batting gloves on. He's about to take some swings. Good mustache, bright red hair, solid looking card. Very good card. Now we go to the back of 292. Carney Lansford, third baseman. Height 6'2", 195, right-handed batter and thrower. Drafted by the Angels in the second round of 1975. Born February 7th. Happy birthday, Carney. 1957, San Jose, California, with a home in Baker, Oregon. Matt, do you know the way to San Jose? I have I've heard that song before, and I think maybe that was a... Was that a joke in Looney Tunes at some point, or was that the... It's always Bugs Albuquerque. Bunny who needs... He's got to make a right turn in Albuquerque that he missed or something like that. But to I, make it I, to San Jose. Yeah, to make it sense. to San Jose, right. I only knew the first part of this song and thought of it as a jaunty little tune. Do you know the way to San Jose? I've been away so long. I may go wrong and lose my way. Do you know the way to San Jose? I'm going back to find some peace of mind in San Jose. And then I was reading the words. This is a Dionne Warwick song. She made mm. it famous, but it's written by Burt Backrack. Dionne Warwick won the 1969 Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal Performance, which was her first Grammy. But the song, as I'm reading the lyrics, is kind of sad if read out of context. And the, the tune is very upbeat, but it tells the story of a San Jose native who went to L.A. to make it big, and then they give up. And they're looking to go back home to find some peace of mind in San Jose. And the lyrics say, weeks turn into years, how quick they pass. And all the stars that never were are parking cars and pumping gas. And yet it's sung in this upbeat, happy tune. And Dionne Warwick is ready to go back to San Jose. It's really a little bit more melancholy than I remember just from from that initial tune. And RIP Burt Bacharach, who just died this week as well, at the age of 94. San Jose, California in Silicon Valley, when Carney was born in 1957, was just starting a boom. In 1960, there was around 200,000 people there, more than doubled by 1970 to 450,000, over a million people by 2020, which is makes it the largest city by population in Northern California and the 10th largest city in the United States, probably one of the lesser known million person cities in, in the country. San Jose is also the largest U.S. city with an Asian plurality. Over 37% of the city is of Asian heritage. Carney's name was never in the top 1,000 names in the Social Security list since 1900. And Carney is his given first name. Carney Ray Lansford is his full name. Carney as a boy's name is of Irish and Gaelic origin. And the meaning is the winner. I also saw it listed as the fighter or the champion. Matt, you got any other famous Carnies? I mean, Carney Wilson comes to mind immediately. Probably top two Carnies, but that one's spelled a little bit different. That's I-E, Carney Wilson, of course, of Wilson Phillips. Art Carney, Norton from the Honeymooners, mm-hmm. Dan and Frank Carney. Ah, yeah, I was going to say Dan and Frank Carney, who were Wichita State Shockers, who founded Pizza Hut. That's the reason I grew up in Wichita, is that my dad got a job for Pizza Hut's corporate headquarters, which used to be in Wichita, Kansas. Hockey player Keith Carney. And also, when I looked up famous Carnies, 
the first thing that came up was Carney's Hot Dog and Burger Restaurant, which is in a yellow Union Pacific rail car on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, California. I'd say other famous Carneys would be the Sword Swallower or the Bearded Lady. Yes, The Greatest Showman features many famous Carneys and some subpar singing from Hugh Jackman. Hot takes on The Greatest Showman. We like to talk about some unfactual fun facts. And on Carney's 1987 Tops card, there is one related to his family history. Matt, can you pull that up on the Jumbotron? Yeah, just looking deep here in the archives for the 1987 Tops set. And looking at card 678 from the 1987 top set, we have Carney Lansford. And the fun fact is that Carney is a direct descendant of Sir Francis Drake, the 16th century British admiral. That's like a really cool fun fact, like better than any fun fact that we have on here. However, it might not be true. Francis Drake circumnavigated the globe between 1577 and 1580, was involved in the English battle against the Spanish Armada, died of dysentery after multiple failed attacks on Spanish territories in America, but he was married and didn't have any children. And according to indrakeswake.co.uk, the Drake Exploration Society, which is not about the Canadian rapper, the first point on the issue of the Drake's descendants, it is impossible for anybody to be descended from Sir Francis Drake. Although he was married twice, he did not produce any children. Furthermore, there is no evidence whatsoever of any illegitimate issue. So, you know, it's impossible to fact check this. Carney Lansford may have been a descendant of some Drake relative, but according to this uh, very well-made 1998 website, he did not have any issue. Um, Sir Francis Drake was described by George Malcolm Thompson as, quote, a sturdy boy, rather under the average height, with bold, bright eyes and reddish hair. Carney, above average height, 6'2", but he did have that reddish hair and a reddish mustache. Unclear if this is a, an actual fun fact or another fun fact myth busted. I can imagine that someone in Carney's family probably said we're descended from Sir Francis Drake and it, and it being perhaps like a brother or sister and that being called a direct descendant. But the Tops Corporation should know better when putting it on the card of saying that someone is a direct descendant. They should have gone to 23andMe, Ancestry.com. The 1987 the version of 23andMe, I don't think would have worked. <laughs> Well, Carney's dad, Tony, he was a direct descendant of Tony Lansford. Tony worked at the Libby's Cannery in Sunnyvale, California, near San Jose, and the family lived in Santa Clara. Libby's was a Chicago meatpacking company, which expanded its operations into canned fruits. Carney had four brothers, and you would expect all these names. We've got Ernie, Gary, Phil, and Joe, that maybe they like ran out of mainstream names before they got to Carney, but Carney was the second oldest. So their second choice was Carney, an interesting choice for a name. The two younger brothers, Phil and Joe, were drafted in the first round of the Major League Draft after Carney turned pro. Phil by Cleveland in 1978, but he never made it past A-ball. And Joe Lansford was picked in 1979. He played in 25 games with the Padres in the early 80s. Carney was a multi-sport athlete in high school, but his best sport was baseball. His Little League team representing Santa Clara made it to the Little League World Series in 1969, where they were shut out by Taiwan in the final 5-0. At Adrian C. Wilcox High School, he played football, basketball, and baseball. 
that school was named after Adrian Wilcox, who was a trustee with the school board for 30 years. Notable alumni include Carlos Noriega, astronaut who served on the space station, Amin Nikfar, a shot putter who represented Iran in the Olympics, and recent MLB pitcher Kyle Baraclough. Colleges offered Carney scholarships to play both football and basketball, but in 1975, the Angels selected him. It looks like we may have another error. The card says he was picked number two in June 1975, but if we go to baseball reference, he was actually the first pick in the third round of that draft. I guess it doesn't really matter too much because the early rounds of that draft didn't pan out. The only notable name in the second round was Lee Smith, and Carney in the third is really the other biggest name in those early rounds. Later rounds had some stars, including Lou Whitaker picked in the fifth round, Andre Dawson in the 11th, and Dave Stewart in the 16th. Carney signed a contract. He's paid $500 a month to go play in the minors. Yeah, and that barely covered his expenses. He goes to rookie ball, and he said, I was sent off to Idaho Falls. It was the first time I was away from home and family, and if I weren't homesick enough, I was in a fireproof hotel, all brick, in a room just big enough for a bed. The toilet was inside the closet. The shower was a community shower in the hallway. We talked about the difficulty for players coming from the Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico and being sent off to play in Medicine Hat, Alberta, or Idaho Falls. But Carney grew up in the Bay Area. There's not as much of a culture shock, but he was far from home, and this was a difficult time for him. He only played in eight games, and a shoulder injury forced him to return home, which might have been a lucky break for him. He said, I don't know what would have happened if I'd stayed there. He might have just quit. This could have been a uh, do-you-know-the-way-to-San-Jose situation where he decided to, to go back home. But luckily for all of us, he started 1976, in the Quad Cities at A-Ball. So apparently the Quad Cities much better than Idaho Falls. That first year in 1976, he played well. He hit 287 with 14 homers and 86 RBIs. He did make 34 errors at third base and wasn't happy with that performance in the field. And overall throughout his career, he wasn't regarded as a great defender. In the years 1980 and 1985, he had two of the worst defensive war performances by a third baseman in the 1980s, the 6th and 11th worst performances. So overall, known more for his bat than his play in the field. He went into 1977 at El Paso. He worked on his defense, and he was better. He made 15 errors, but that was a significant cut from the prior season. But he also had a similar number of putouts and assists. So he was playing much better at third base and learning the position. His offense got better as well, and we have a fun fact. Yeah, and that is that Carney ranked third with 98 runs and seventh with a 332 batting average in the Texas League at El Paso in 1977. He also drove in 94 runs in 116 games. Quite an offensive league if 332 is seventh in the batting <laughs> race. I did not look into that. Big hitters. 1978, the Angels moved their third baseman, Dave Chalk, to shortstop. So they've got a vacancy at third, and Carney goes straight from double-A to the big leagues. In his first major league appearance, he pinch hit for Rance Mullinix. So this Angels team has a Carney and a Rance on the same <laughs> team. Good names. The Angels were 25-21 and 21 on a five-game losing streak. They fire their manager, Dave Garcia. They bring in club legend Jim Fergosi, and they improved a bit, finishing the season 87-75 and 75 in second place behind the Royals. That season, Carney was involved in a notable incident, a brawl. This game was June 10th, 1978. 
Angels playing against the Yankees. Two consecutive Angels collide with Yankees catcher Mike Heath at home plate in the ninth inning. The first is Bobby Gritch. Paul Blair throws him out by a mile. Bobby Gritch just lines up and tries to just truck Mike Heath. Mike Heath holds onto the ball. Gritch isn't happy, slams his helmet on the ground. Heath is triumphant. Next batter hits a sharp ground ball to third. Carney is on third, runs toward home, is also going to be out by a significant amount as Greg Nettles makes a good throw to home plate. One ball, one strike, the pitch. Swing on the ground, line drive, low line drive, scooped up by Nettles, throws to the plate, and he's out at the plate. And there's a little wrestling match as Carney Lansford and Mike Heath get into it. Both benches empty, and we have a melee around home plate. And there are a lot of this thrown for a moment, and now it's a matter of just trying to separate Carney Lansford and the young catcher Mike Heath. Heath tackles Carney Lansford and starts throwing punches. I looked at this and I can understand why Mike Heath is a little upset at getting, you know, two collisions in a row. But I don't think there's any reason for Heath to mount him and start throwing punches UFC style. But I definitely understand why he was getting a little peeved. Throwing someone out at the plate, it's really one of the only times when you could have contact. And especially back in the 70s, it was a much different time, much different rules. And the announcers on this play are even saying Carney Lansford did what he was supposed to do. Carney just, he went in strong, tried to knock the ball loose. He didn't go after Keith, and then Heath kind of hopped on him. It showed some grit on Carney's part that as a rookie, he's willing to go in and try to do what he can to score the run. But unfortunately, he ends up injuring ligaments in his thumb and missing a month of playing time. Altogether on the season, He played in 121 games, hit eight home runs, stole 20 bases, and hit 294. Wow. Pretty good year. He finished third in the AL Rookie of the Year vote. Lou Whitaker won that year. Carney was a little bit below average on defense. 17 errors was fifth in the American League, but his offense more than made up for it. Yeah, getting injured for a month, that is the downside, though. If he slides in normally, he's still going to end up being out and maybe wins Rookie of the Year. You never know. 1979, he got married earlier in that year and had a great first half of the season, hitting over 300 at the break and didn't make the all-star team. And his teammate, Don Baylor, had something to say about it. He said, everyone is going to vote for Greg Nettles because of his World Series games. That's unfair to Carney. He's having an all-star year. The players would vote for Lansford. But because of the ballot box stuffing in Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles, Kansas City, and places like that, he won't make it. David, these are some forceful claims by Don Baylor. Claims of electoral indiscretions happening in big cities throughout the United States. You can see the headlines, Don Baylor, stop the steal. He's standing up for his teammate and trying to get Carney's name out there in the news. Don Baylor would have other nice things to say about Carney in his autobiography, which we will get to later on. That season, Carney also added some power. He hit 19 home runs to go along with his 20 steals and finished the season with a 287 average. His strikeouts were up a little bit, 115 strikeouts. He only walked 39 times, so his on-base was a little bit low. The Angels that season won the AL West, faced the Orioles in the ALCS. Carney went 5-for-17 in that series, which was a 294 average. That's about Carney Lansford range. But the Orioles won three games to one. 
1980, again, of decent first half of the season, hit 283 with eight home runs, about what he had done in the previous seasons. Then in August, the bottom dropped out. He hit 218, 263 on base percentage, and then only a 228 average in September and October. When his average dropped, the Angels GM, Buzzy Bavasi, suggested that he get glasses mid-season. It's an interesting strategy. And it didn't really work. He couldn't get used to it in the middle of the season. Not only did his offense drop, but his errors increased from 7 to 19. He was valued at negative 1.2 defensive war, which was the worst in the American League among third basemen. And again, this was the 11th worst third base performance of the 1980s. This is not good, and it maybe has the Angels thinking they might want to trade him. Carney would wear glasses later in his career. A lot of those baseball cards, I think, including his 1987 card, he is wearing glasses. But it did not help him this year. It seemed like the Angels were really just trying to do anything they could to get him back on track and sometimes making those changes concurrently and not waiting to see which which thing worked before trying something new. So like you said, they were looking for a trade with Boston. They weren't initially looking to unload Carney. According to Boston's manager, Ralph Houck, he said they didn't want to give up Lansford, but they said they had to have shortstop Rick Burleson. We said we have to have Lansford, and we built it that way. It's a deal that was fun to work on because it made sense. So initially, it makes sense to both teams. Boston sends Rick Burleson and Butch Hobson, third baseman, to the Angels for pitcher Mark Clear, outfielder Rick Miller, and Carney. California gets one all-star season out of Rick Burleson. Then in the next three seasons, he's limited to only 51 games. Butch Hobson is gone after one disappointing season. So California doesn't get much in return for Carney. Boston gets Mark Clear, who has a couple good seasons and a couple subpar seasons, making an all-star game in 1982. Rick Miller was near the end of his career, but still a serviceable outfielder. And Carney was really the star of this trade. Yeah, 1981 was the strike-shortened season, but the back of the card shows you there's black ink. He leads the league with a 336 average. Boston was a good team with Dwight Evans, Jim Rice, and a couple of old-timers, and Tony Perez, and a 41-year-old Carl Yastrzemski. And Carney steps right in. He hit everything. At Fenway, he hit 363. He was good in both halves of that strike-shortened season. Remember, they split it in half. He hit 329 in the first half, and the Red Sox were in fifth place for that first half of the season. The second half, the Red Sox finished second, so they miss out on the playoffs. But Carney hit 345 in that back half of the season to raise his season average to 336, win the AL batting title, only four home runs that season, so not the same pop he had had in years past. But 23 doubles and 15 steals, he wins the Silver Slugger Award and got some MVP votes, finishing sixth. Following up that 1981 season, he had a strong 1982, except there was an injury in the middle of this season, which was unfortunate for Carney, but probably fortuitous for Red Sox fans. In late June, Carney's hitting 288. In a game against the Tigers, he hits a triple to deep right. He's waved home. The throw beats him. He tries to go through Lance Parrish, as we would expect from Kearney, and sprains his ankle, tearing a ligament in the process. As he's put on the disabled list, Lanceford praises the young man who's coming in to replace him, a youngster who is hitting 258 as a pinch hitter and sometimes first base or third base replacement. Kearney said, I've got an awful lot of confidence in him. He's a darn good hitter who hasn't really had a chance to get into any kind of groove this year. But once he plays a few games, I think he's really going to show people something. 
And that was Wade Boggs. <laughs> yeah, he was a darn good hitter. Carney came back in a month and finished out the season with a 301 average. Boggs split time between third and first base that year, but showed enough to the Red Sox management that maybe Carney was expendable. So we have another trade. Carney was coming up on free agency anyway, and the Red Sox thought that he'd be looking for a salary in the million-dollar range. So on December 6, 1982, Boston sent Lansford and outfielder Gary Hancock and minor league pitcher Jerry King to Oakland for outfielder Tony Armas and catcher Jeff Newman. Carney already knows the way to San Jose, so it's already the Bay Area. Getting to Oakland is no big deal. The A's president said we got exactly the player we wanted, as good a third baseman as there is in the game. We're set at third base now for at least five years. Carney's back at home, but unfortunately, he and his wife, Debbie, had to deal with the personal tragedy. The prior year, their two-year-old son, Nicholas, was diagnosed with a kidney disease. Initially, doctors tried to find a donor, but Nicholas was not deemed a suitable recipient. So during spring training, Nicholas's health deteriorated, and after a year of trying everything they could, Nicholas passed away in April of 1983. The A's were a good employer to Carney in this regard. They let him kind of come and go as he needed to during spring training. They didn't require him to be there all the time. They understood the situation, and they also understood that things could change at any moment. And so Carney was able to actually leave the stadium to be with his son when his son passed away. Carney took some time off, but he wanted to get back on the field. He said, I need to get back in there to get back to work, but I know how difficult it's going to be to put this out of my mind how difficult it's going to be waking up in the morning and not having him there. The A's allowed Debbie to travel with the team so that she and Carney could be there for each other during that time. And after missing 10 games in April on bereavement, he injured his wrist later that month and missed most of May, playing only two games that month, and returned to the disabled list until mid-June. Then later in the year, his ankle injury flared up. So really, tough year in so many ways. All in all, he missed half the season, played only 80 games. While he was there, he played well, hitting 308 with 10 home runs and driving in 45. In 1984, a really solid year for Carney. Played 151 games that year, a 300 average, 14 homers, 74 RBIs, and a career-high 31 doubles. The A's underperformed and replaced their manager midseason finishing in fourth place, eight games under 500. 1985, Carney injures his right wrist, misses most of August, shut down early. He hit well in the time that he played, as you would expect, 277, 13 homers, but was limited to under 100 games again. So a couple of up and down seasons here with injuries. But 1986 was a turning point for both the A's and for Lansford. He started a run of healthy seasons, and the A's started putting together the team that would make three straight World Series. This team started the year 29 and 44, so they fire their manager, Jackie Moore, on July 7th, and they bring in the recently fired from the White Sox, Tony LaRussa, and they go 45 and 34 the rest of the season. They have a great young core of players here in Rookie of the Year, Jose Canseco. They bring up, at the end of the season, a young Terry Steinbach and a third baseman named Mark McGuire. He's going to need to find a new position because you got Carney Lansford there. Can't put some rookie at third base. Find a new spot, Mark. Carney plays 100 games a third, 59 at first base, and he had a Carney Lansford year, 284, 19 homers, 16 steals, valued at 4.1 wins above replacement. That was fourth among players with at least 100 games at third base, tied with George Brett. 
So that's kind of the strata that he's in as one of the top third basemen, both in the American League as well as in, in the majors overall. Yeah, 1987, this A's team is only 500, but it's exciting, and you can tell that they're going to be really good. This was the year of Mark McGuire. He had 49 home runs, setting the rookie record on his way to American League Rookie of the Year. Canseco added 31 home runs. Dave Stewart won 20 games. Eck was finding his place as the closer. They are putting together the team that's going to go on a World Series streak. And yet, who led the team in war? Carney Lansford, 5.2, a career high, just ahead of Mark McGuire's 5.1. That is a shocking fact. Fun fact. I mean, if wins above replacement was a thing, that would be on the bottom of this card. Instead, we got game-winning RBIs. Carney was helped by playing above-average defense at third while McGuire was new to first base and showed it. Lansford hit 289, had a career-high 60 walks. Hit 19 homers again, OPS plus of 123. He also stole 27 bases, pretty good for a 30-year-old third baseman with ankle injury history. In the modern era, there's been only 20 times that a guy has swiped 27 or more bases after age 30 while playing 75% of their games at third base. Carney did it three times. So three of those 20 times, Carney Lansford, and this is the first of three in a row. In 1988, it's the third year in a row where he played 150 or more games. He hit 444 in May to win American League Player of the Month, followed that up by hitting 160 in the month of June, but we'll skip right past that. He hit 332 with 40 RBIs the first half of the season, which earned him his first All-Star appearance. Pretty shocking given he's had some really good years previously. The second half of the season, though, he was pretty bad. Hit only 185 and two home runs. Finished the season at 279, seven home runs and 29 steals. The, the A's win 104 games and win the AL West by 13 games. They sweep the Red Sox in the ALCS, and Carney was good in the series, hit 294. But against the Dodgers in the World Series, almost every A's bat fell silent, including Carney. He hit 167 in the World Series. Better than McGuire and Canseco, who were both in the 050s. The Dodgers win the World Series four games to one. 1989 is a different story. And from the beginning of the season, the A's had a point to prove. Prior to the season, according to Carney, Tony La Russa had a premonition. He is many things, Tony La Russa. Apparently, he could see into the future. Tony La Russa told the team, we're going to play the Giants in the postseason, which says we're going to make it to the World Series. So because he has this feeling... He schedules all of these games against the Giants in preseason. And according to Carney, the A's won them all. They had a feeling going forward, we're going to play the Giants later on. And the A's were ready to make a run, not happy with the way that 1988 ended. They continued right where they left off in the regular season, winning 99 games, win the division by seven games. In June, they trade for Ricky Henderson, which that helps. (laughs) That helps really any situation. Bring in Ricky Henderson to a team that just made it to the World Series. They had some injuries. They lost Jose Canseco and Walt Weiss for much of the season, but Carney stayed healthy. He even filled in at first base when McGuire was hurt. He hit 336, the same as his league-leading season in 1981, and he was the only A's player with, with an average over 300. He stole 37 bases, second only to Ricky's 52. He only hit two home runs, but had an OPS plus of 131, and again was one of the best war guys on the team. He had 4.6 war that year, which was good for third on the team and the seventh most valuable third baseman in the major leagues. 
In the 1989 playoffs, the A's faced the Blue Jays, and Carney appeared in the first three games, went 5-for-11 with two walks, scored two runs, and drove in four. The A's are up two games to one and would win the next two games with Carney on the bench to set up the Bay Bridge series with the Giants. Carney got hits in the A's wins in games one and two, driving in a, a run in game two. And then prior to game three, the Loma Prieta earthquake strikes That earthquake kills 63 people, injures thousands, causes millions of dollars in damage. Fans and players at Candlestick Park are confused and frightened. Players drive their families home, many of them still wearing their uniforms. The A's move their training to Phoenix, and 10 days later, the series resumes. Up two games to nothing, the A's didn't look back. Carney scores the first run in Game 3, then scores on a Jose Canseco home run in the fifth inning, and then in the sixth, Now Lansford hits it in the air to left field and deep and going back is Mitchell and that one is gone. And that ties a World Series record for most home runs in the game by a team and most in the game by two teams as well. It's 9-3. That homer, because it was the A's fifth, ties them with the most home runs in a single World Series game, tied with the 1928 Yankees, the 2017 Astros, and 2022 Phillies, Carney added a two-run single in the eighth inning. The A's won 13-7. For the game, he went three for four with a walk, four runs scored, and two RBIs. Pretty good line. Going for the sweep in game four, Carney went two for four with a walk, a run scored, and another RBI. The A's never trailed in the World Series. In those four games, Carney hit 438 with a 1.214 OPS. He scored five runs and drove in four. And Carney in an interview said, after last year's disappointing loss to the Dodgers, the most gratifying part about winning this year was showing the whole world what the A's are really like. I love it. And Matt, we just watched this video of his home run. We would be remiss if we didn't point out Carney Lansford's iconic stance. Do you have thoughts on this yeah. Carney Lansford stance? I'd kind of call it an open hunchback stance. It's an open stance as a right-handed hitter where his left foot is pointed, you know, 45 degrees, not all the way toward third base, but about halfway to third base. And he's got a nice hunch. He's not standing up straight at all. He's really compact. Hands are low. He's really crunched up. He he also waggles the bat a little bit. It's a very interesting (laughs) stance. We had some good stances in the 80s between him and Julio Franco and Ruben Sierra, guys that we've talked about already. Carney Lansford has one of the best. I think I just sent you a picture here of him just really crouched down in that A's uniform. There's also an intensity in his eyes that is striking. Intense guy, very good batting stance. Indeed. 1990, the A's would win 103 games, win the AL West by nine games over the White Sox. Carney's in his 30s, and he's losing a bit. He hit only 268 that year, missing some playing time in July. But in the postseason, again, he was fantastic. Against the Red Sox in a four-game sweep, he hit 438, which was same as he did in the 89 World Series. He scored two and drove in two. That's three straight postseason series with the averages over 400. But the World Series against the Reds didn't go as the A's planned. Canseco and McGuire combined to go four for 26 with one home run. Carney wasn't terrible. He went four for 15, but only had one RBI, only limited opportunities to drive anybody in. The Reds caught lightning in a bottle this year and swept the three-time AL champs, much to the delight of Grandma's scorebook. 
In the off-season, Carney was at his property in Oregon, and on New Year's Eve, he was snowmobiling, which is not a good way to start a story. He got his property line mixed up, and he was too close to a barbed wire fence hidden under a snowbank. That's going to hurt. He crashes, and while he didn't break any bones, he tore two ligaments in his knee. Carney acknowledged that he was lucky. He could have been paralyzed or killed. But it did require surgery, and Carney said it was the same type of reconstructive knee surgery that NBA star Bernard King had. And Bernard's doing all right, Carney said. True, but King missed two entire seasons rehabbing. He made it back for five games at the end of the season. It was a tough year for the A's, replacing Carney at third with Ernie Riles, hitting 214 didn't help. And so they kind of rode off the year. They were above 500, but they did break the streak of World Series appearances. Carney re-signs with the A's for 1992, hitting his 2,000th hit, a home run at home against Texas. I told the clubhouse guy, I don't care what you have to give this guy for the ball. I want it. I'll give up my Porsche. I want that ball. He had an okay season. He had 262 with seven homers, 30 doubles, drove in 75. The A's returned to the top of the AL West with 96 wins, played Toronto in the playoffs, Carney played in five of the six games, but he didn't have that ALCS magic anymore. He went three for 18 as the Jays won in six games. And Carney decided to retire after that season. It took so long for me to take off my uniform for the last time, he said. It's not as easy as I thought it would be. It's time for me to move on and spend some time with my kids. So uh, closing the book on Carney Lansford, 16 seasons in the major leagues, lifetime batting average of 290. With 2,074 hits, 151 home runs, and, and 874 runs batted in, OPS plus of 111, one batting title, one all-star game, one silver slugger, and one World Series ring. How about Hall of Fame votes? In 1998, in his first year on the ballot, he got three Hall of Fame votes, which was not enough to keep him on the ballot for a second round. With a Hall of Stats rating of 70, I can understand, so we won't make that strong a claim here. But how about in retirement? A couple of years after he retired, he served as a technical advisor to the film Angels in the Outfield, and he also appeared in the movie as White Sox slugger Kit Hit or Die Kesey. Kit was so good that even as a visiting player, they announced his nickname over the loudspeaker and had a <laughs> graphic showing that said Hit or Die I don't know if Carney got a permanent tattoo of it, but the character has a tattoo that says hit or die. Excellent nickname. We mentioned Carney's first son, Nicholas, who passed away. He also had two other sons, Jared and Josh. Josh was picked in the sixth round by the Cubs in 2006 out of Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, home of friend of the show, Andrew. Josh spent nine seasons in the minors, first as a third baseman, making it to double A then as a relief pitcher, mostly in A-ball and independent ball. Jared was picked in the second round out of high school by the A's. He made it all the way up to AAA, then played in Taiwan, Venezuela, and Italy. Altogether, he played 13 seasons of professional ball. So after Carney's star turn playing baseball against the undead, he went into <laughs> coaching, first with La Russa in Oakland in 94-95, then in St. Louis, 97-98. He managed the AAA Edmonton Trappers in 1999 and then was a hitting coach for San Francisco and Colorado and also for the Lamigo Monkeys in CPBL. That team is now known as the Rakuten Monkeys in 2015. And he was a coach there when his son Jared played on the team. 
He is now retired and living in Mesa, Arizona. And according to Wikipedia, and this is an unsourced Wikipedia note, in 2019, Lansford created a personal webpage where he announced he would be starting a webpage dedicated to recapping and commenting on the Star Wars series, The Mandalorian. <laughs> Lansford is an avid Star Wars fan and has always stated that his favorite character was Boba Fett. However, as of 2020, the webpage has been deactivated and Lansford never offered any public commentary on the show <laughs> what <laughs> cardi lansford sounds like a star wars character it does it is a very star wars name i could find no other source for this information i searched for cardi lansford mandalorian <laughs> cardi lansford is one of luke's friends on tatooine but he also yeah, so what... works in the diner with dexter jetster yeah, it works in the diner, serve, like, works at the grill. Dexter Jetster is the name of the guy who owns the diner. Oh, it's terrible. Why? That's even from the prequels. Why do I know that? Why is that it, like, taking up space in my brain? Oh, but that's on Coruscant. Oh, no. Okay. I screwed up, Matt. It's bad. It's okay. It we happens. can leave it in. If somebody really wants to correct me on the location of Dexter Jetster's grill, I encourage you to send me an email. Well, we've already corrected Sounds it, good. I guess, here. And I encourage our listeners to not correct this Wikipedia page. <laughs> also, you know, don't go in and, like, edit it and make it weirder. I think it's perfect as it is. That is a beautiful note. So, David, Carney Lansford was kind of an overlooked player on those World Series teams for the A's. But as you said, got Hall of Fame votes and had a lot going on in his career. So what do you think about him now that we've looked at him a little bit more? I think that he should have gotten maybe a few more Hall of Fame votes, maybe stayed on for another year on the ballot. He's not necessarily a Hall of Famer, and his numbers don't back that up. If he had stayed healthy for his whole career, added a couple more of those four or five war seasons, maybe. But Carney had an interesting career. He overcame personal tragedy and serious injuries and was one of the best third basemen of the 80s. He had the seventh highest wins above replacement of any third baseman in the decade and is on the all-time wins above replacement leaderboard for third baseman. He is 36th ahead of bigger names and Hall of Fame names, Hall of Famer Pi Trainer, Bill Madlock, Tim Wallach, Troy Gloss, Eric Chavez are all below Carney on that list. Carney was a professional hitter, and while his defense was below average for his career, it was minus 2.1. That's good enough to continue playing at that position for a really good team for a long time. The A's never really thought about moving Carney out of the third base position. They had a good first baseman. He wasn't a good enough power hitter to put at DH, but he was a solid enough third baseman. In his book, Don Baylor called him Mr. Intensity. He said Carney is a workaholic. When he came up with the Angels, they tried to plan a lot of negative thoughts in his head telling him he didn't have lateral range and needed glasses. Fortunately, Carney didn't listen. He knows every other park, as if he's played in each his entire career. You can't learn to be that good. It's instinctive. Carney is also good people, intelligent, caring, a guy who would walk through a wall to help a friend. And he also showed that through his willingness to try to run through catchers. <laughs> Carney Lansford was a very good player on very good teams. Maybe not quite Hall of Fame, but in the minds of Oakland A's fans, this is a guy who was part of three straight World Series teams and had some really good years. So a very solid career, 2,000 hits, it's nothing to sneeze at, 40 career war, that's really good. 
walking through a wall to help a friend and running through a wall to try to score. So a really good story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you've got your nickname tattooed on your bicep, we would love to see it. Send a picture to us on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot. And we'll see you next week.